What's up everybody, it's your boy Corey Franchise and welcome to another episode of the most notorious gangsters in the world, episode 6. I'm excited for the 6th episode. If you're new to the podcast and subscribed, I really appreciate you. I'm trying to build something epic here, y'all. And I'm glad you guys tuning in with me from the start. I definitely appreciate your support. Without y'all, the show is nothing. I'm grateful to dig and try to bring the most accurate info that I can bring to my listeners. So if y'all are dedicated, then I'm dedicated. On today's show, we're going to tell the story of a man that was stopping nothing to build the most powerful crime syndicate in the world. He was feared, he was mild-mannered, and he was respected. At the time of his reign, he had more power than the mayor. At 19, he was already a made man. I'm talking about the most low-key, successful crime boss, Carlo Gambino. Carlo was born August 24th, 1902. He was raised in a successful, well-connected family, and most of which were already in the mafia. He was sheltered by the mob, and the part of the city he lived in was so dominated by the honor society, it was off limits to law enforcement and military. As a teen, Carlo looked up to the men in the mafia. They had power and money, everything a man wanted, and they were treated like kings. Women would kiss their hand, and the men would take off their hats. Carlo wanted to be just like them. But there was one particular man that Carlo idolized. He was the most powerful man in Sicily, and the head of the honor society. He was charismatic, he was fearless. His name was Don Vito Cacioferro. Carlo liked his criminal intuition. Don Vito perfected the art of extortion. While earlier mafioso would destroy businesses for not cooperating, Cacioferro saw a better opportunity. He started offering mafia protection for fees so the owners could work without fear. Carlo wanted to be a part of this action. He would end up dropping out of school in his early teens and with the help of his connections of his family, he got a job with Don Vito as an enforcer. If men from the businesses failed to pay, he would have Vito stage an accident. As a young criminal, Carlo was five foot seven and he looked innocent and he didn't wear suits. He was very shy and reserved. He always wanted to be like a lion and a fox because a fox was smart and the lion was strong. So he proved that to both Vito and the other men of respect. And he would carry out all of their orders with violence and smarts. At 19, his hard work paid off. He had been offered a formal induction into the honor society. Then around this time, events outside of Palermo would change his life. In 1920, fascism was gaining popularity. Mussolini had little tolerance for the society. One of his main objectives was to destroy the mafia. A lot of young mafioso realized they would end up dead or in jail, so any connections that they had to leave Italy, they would use them. Carlo had family in America, the Castellanos, who were his mother's family, so he set his sights on America. There his family was established, and they could introduce him to a new criminal life with golden opportunities. In 1921, Carlo was smuggled to America, his parents had paid a great amount to a captain to get the privileged young man across the Atlantic. And one month after, 
the ship pulled into Norfolk, Virginia to meet his family and then taken back to New York. Carlo wasn't treated just like some kid. He was treated like a prince. December 1921, he set foot on American land and began moving up the mafia ladder through hard work and violence. But Carlo had one up on his peers. His family was already a part of the New York underworld and he was renting an apartment near the Brooklyn waterfront. Also, wasting no time, they introduced Carlo to the rackets in the era of prohibition and the public was thirsty for illegal alcohol. Organized crime was supplying it and seeing huge profits. But some of the major players in the business were his relatives, the Castellanos. They had a trucking company and most of the trucks were used for delivering booze. Also, Carlo was a rum runner. He was a driver or he rode passenger because some of the gangs used to hijack each other's trucks for product. During Carlo's new life of crime, he would run into one of the local mafia bosses, Joe the Boss Masseria, a Sicilian man of respect that ran a bootlegging racket. Carlos, seeing this as a way to get ahead, started working for Joe and brought in big profits. Carlo was a real businessman, and it was like he was indispensable to whoever employed him. But at the same time, he knew that working for any single boss would make him a rival to the other side. And with his own ambition, in the 1930s, there was no room for any lasting was involved in the turf boss. war with a Sicilian rival, Salvatore Maranzano. And most of the younger mafia did not like the war because it was tearing things apart and it was bad for business. So a friend of Carlo's, Lucky Luciano, put a plan together to eliminate the boss. He offered Carlo a position and he agreed. With making this decision, Carlo would put himself in position of leadership in the future. So Lucky set up the hit. He set up a lunch with Masseria and a Coney Island restaurant. Sometime during the lunch, he excused himself from the table and four gunmen walked in, killing Masseria. Now it's obvious that they had sided with Maranzano. Maranzano, he was happy to have the two clever money makers on his team. But little did he know they wouldn't be loyal to him either. They were going to take over everything. And soon after, Lucky Luciano would set him up too to be shot and stabbed numerous times in his office in New York. And now, Luciano was now in charge, and Carlo had been a big part of that. Luciano had started to turn the underground into a corporation, with each major gang getting a vote on the board of directors. Carlo was assigned to the boss of the Brooklyn waterfront, Vincent Maganu, where he would learn to start the course of building his own empire. Under Maganu, he learned to run many rackets, like numbers, loan sharking, and cargo theft. He was a good earner for the mob and entitled to respect. And this paid off. At 29, he was promoted to captain and ran his own crew. One of the first chosen to run with him was his cousin Paul Castellano, and he knew he could trust his cousin. They said that he wouldn't trust anyone unless you were family. They said blood ties were significant to Carlo. Some say maybe too significant. At 30 years old, he married Paul Castellano's sister, his first cousin. They settled into a roadhouse in Brooklyn, raised three sons and a daughter. Carlo was a great father and husband, 
but his hunger for more would not stop. The repeal of prohibition in 1933 brought hard times down on their lucrative bootleg operations. Carlos saw a new path, contraband alcohol. By dodging liquor taxes, he could undercut his legit competitors and make more money. With this scheme, he made one of the first of his fortunes. But in 1937, Carlo was arrested on tax evasion in connection to running a million gallon illegal steel in Philadelphia. But somehow he beat the rap and got off with a suspended sentence. During 1941, with America entering World War II, Carlo was trying to find ways to make money off of it. As a part of the war effort, the government started rationalizing essential goods like meat, chocolate, and gas. Government-issued ration stamps were like gold, and Carlo would hoard them. After a short time, they started storing the stamps in a bank, and Carlo would pay off government officials to steal the stamps for him. By 1950s, Carlo had a reputation as a huge earner for the mob but he didn't feel like there was more room to grow. In 1951, Vincent Maganew had disappeared, and it is said that his underboss and Carlo's rival, Albert Anastasia, was responsible, with the nickname the Lord High Executioner, and one of the most feared gangsters of his time, also a member of Murder, Inc. He would then take control of the family. Although Anastasia made Carlo his underboss in 1956, Carlo knew that there was no way he would naturally become boss. Unlike his boss, Carlo used his violence selectively, but when he saw no other way, he wouldn't hesitate to use murder. Carlo wanted the top, and if that meant taking out Anastasia, then so be it. On October 25, 1957, Anastasia went to get a shave in Midtown Manhattan at his favorite barber shop and the Sheridan Hotel. They say that a hot towel was placed on his face and after, gunman walked in and shot him out of the chair. Now this made Carlo the boss and it wouldn't be long until he transferred the family into a family of his own, the Gambino dynasty. By 55, he had achieved his dream of being in charge. And he started expanding to other types of racket, gambling, construction bed rigging, and loan sharking. In 1962, Carlo once again used his blood ties to keep a vice on organized crime. He arranged the marriage of his eldest son, Tommy, to a fellow New York crime boss's daughter, which was Tommy Lakeese. The marriage gave him an opening to a whole new racket hijacking from the JFK airport, corrupting unions that handle freight, and offering bribes. Also getting tips on when valuable shipments would arrive. Because of the marriage, both sides worked together. Then he started expanding his empire by taking control of another racket and extorting the New York garment industry. By infiltrating the truckers union, he would demand a percentage of every garment sold in New York. If they did not pay up, the goods would not make it. In the mid-60s, Carlo was in his mid-60s, aging comfortably. Through it all, Carlo himself was a low-key and behind-the-scenes individual. He didn't like media, 
he didn't want a big fancy house or nice shiny cars. If you didn't know him, you would just think he was a harmless grandfather, not a godfather. Carlo was also addicted to coffee. He would go to all the high-end restaurants and drink out of a bottomless cup. It was said that Carlo would drink up to a dozen cups of black coffee a day. But to the ones that knew the laid-back, mild-mannered man, he couldn't fool them. They knew what he was capable of. By the late 60s, the Gambino crime family had grown to 25 crews, around 800 men, and he would arguably be the most powerful man in New York. For a man that dropped out of school, he had control of 30 to 50 rackets at one time, worth multi-millions. Carlo was the fox and the lion, like he always said, and he was also well-respected. He always stopped in Little Italy to the Ferrera Bakery, and there he was treated like the Pope. They would almost stand in line to kiss his ring. His wife, Catherine, she helped Carlo keep a respectable household look. But the feds were not fooled. Carlo was harassed by police. They put a marked car in front of his house. Mark Organized Crime Control Bureau. They were letting him know that we know that you're the biggest crook in New York. In 1959, an associate by the name of John Gotti and his brother were caught hijacking a truck at JFK Airport. This didn't stop things for long, but it definitely brought attention. Then a year later, Carlo was back in court and charged with masterminding an armed robbery. His lawyer had got him many delays on the case, but during the time his wife Catherine was diagnosed with cancer and died in 1971. But trouble was not over for Carlo. They were trying to push him back to Sicily for being an illegal alien. But every time he was going to be sent back to Sicily, his heart troubles would get worse. When they were set to deport him, a connection stepped in for Carlo and saved the day. Gambino's people had made a deal with a powerful congressman, and in exchange they would be paid $1,000 a month for good if he was allowed to stay. And Carlo was allowed to stay. But the years had taken a toll on Carlo. He had become older, his heart was weaker, and he was frail. In October 1976, in Long Island, Carlo had died in his home while watching a New York Yankees game. Carlo had ran the business successfully for 20 years before he died, and he left a dynasty that would outlive him for a very long time, all without spending a single day in prison. At Carlo's funeral, there were thousands of people that walked through and paid their respects to the legend. But after the death of Carlo, things were not the same for the family, and they were in search of new direction. Keep the change, you filthy animal.